The White House says the intelligence on Russian operatives paying bounties for killing American soldiers in Afghanistan was not fully vetted. But it was vetted enough to warn our coalition partners about. It was vetted enough to alert U.S. military commanders on the ground. And it was vetted enough to put in the president's daily brief, which, of course, the White House says the president never actually read. So what does that tell us about how the Trump administration handled some of the most potentially explosive intelligence reporting in recent years? We'll discuss with Congressman Eric Swalwell, a member of both the House Intelligence and Judiciary Committees, and we'll talk to our former Yahoo colleague and now CNN senior global affairs analyst, Biana Goladriga, an expert on all things Russia and much else on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And we are joined by the aforementioned Biana. Biana, welcome back to Skullduggery. Hey, guys. Last time we spoke, it was pre-corona and I think <laughs> in the midst of um, impeachment news. It's... Seems like another era, doesn't it? I know, uh, it does. But, Good to talk to you. But anyway, so much to talk about here. And the White House is clearly trying to push back as hard as it can on the reporting about Russians paying these bounties for killing Americans. Bianca, you've been watching this uh, unfold over the last week. Uh, what's your take? Well, look, what struck me is that you mentioned the White House pushing back. If anything, it appears that given, you know, their mode of operation in, in the past with regards to news that didn't benefit them, or in particular when it came to Russia, it seems like they're just trying to move on from this story and not even push back as much as uh, focus on other matters. They haven't denied the validity of the allegation itself, right? It was their focus now on whether the president was briefed, which is, you know, a headline in and of itself in any other administration, and also the validity of the information. But obviously, given your background, and we all know how national security matters work and intelligence works, it's, it's rarely a slam dunk. I mean, that's what intelligence is all about. Uh, and you have plenty of occasions, including the bin Laden raid, where intelligence was presented to the president that, that wasn't necessarily a slam dunk. You have differing intelligence agencies who may at times have different views as to um, how spot on that intelligence is and how accurate it is. But these are all measures to be had and conversations to be had internally, not you know, something that you don't raise with the president, you bring it to the forefront of his attention that there may be differing views on the validity um, of the the reporting and the intelligence. But it's nothing that that goes unmentioned. It's, it's something that he is he is alerted to, and it's clearly something they well, viewed as yeah. strong enough to raise with our allies. They're in such a bind here because, as you point out, uh, Biana. I mean, either. 
the president was briefed and they did essentially nothing about it. I mean, the information goes back to February when it was put in the PDB and then debated in the National Security Council in in late March. And so if he was aware of it for months and months, they've done absolutely nothing when American service members may have been killed. But if he wasn't uh, briefed about it, that is a dereliction of responsibility on such a level that it's almost uh, impossible to fathom. And, you know, Robert, especially, uh, can I just add, especially yeah. that we know that starting at the end of March, when this matter was raised to the National Security Council, Trump had a half a dozen phone calls over the next few weeks with Putin in which they're talking about all sorts of matters. And one would think that knowing this <laughs> would be an important part of the presidential preparation for a phone call with, with Putin. And let's not forget that the National Security Council is not an intelligence department, right? They're all focused on policy. So for intelligence to reach them at that level, once it's there, it's, if for all intents and purposes, valid, right? It's a matter of how they act on it. That's what the National Intelligence Council focuses on. And so when you have the president and the National Security Council focuses on, so when you have the president presented with this, and it typically it's all a matter of policy going forward, not a matter of do we believe this or not. And you're absolutely right, Michael. The fact that the president spoke with Vladimir Putin multiple times after the fact, the fact that he had insisted shocking the rest of the world and our allies, but, you know, unfortunately not shocking to us who've covered him for three years now, insisting once again that Russia be readmitted to the G8 and inviting Russia to the G7. This is something that would have been glaringly obvious to his advisors. And so for them not to flag this, and you had the national security advisor, O'Brien, go on national television once again throughout this period and tout that this president has been very tough on Russia. It's, um, it, it would be jaw-dropping. I got to say, Robert O'Brien's uh, appearance on Fox, in which he essentially threw the CIA briefer under the bus for not bringing it up, it, you know, is, is kind of shocking. I mean, the reality is that this was in the PDB. The National Security Advisor works with the briefers to make decisions about what to emphasize in the oral briefing with the President of the United States. So what that means is that uh, Robert O'Brien would have discussed this issue with the briefer and made a decision himself that this was not worthy of a presidential briefing. And I have to say, I think there's going to be a lot of scrutiny of the people around the president and why they didn't think it rose to the level of, uh, of telling him about this. And to your point, Biana, uh, about what the threshold is for what gets briefed and what doesn't get briefed, at the point where you're debating uh, what the response ought to be, which is a response that would have to be made by a decision that would have to be made by the president of the United States, you would think it would rise to the level of, of actually <laughs> briefing him. So I, I am still skeptical that he didn't know about this. I'm not I mean, sure that I, we should I, just I accept the, that. The, 
I think the explanation is not that it didn't rise to the level, but they knew what the reaction was likely to be from the president himself. Whenever you bring him intelligence about Russia, we know he blows up. He immediately looks at it through the context of what he views as the Russia hoax and the Mueller investigation. And uh, it's not anything he wants to hear about. He views all intelligence about Russian misbehavior as part of some sort of deep state plot to push on him intelligence that coming from the same people who sort of put the taint on his election by playing up and reporting to him about Russian interference in the 2016 election. And And I agree with you. There's no way he did not know about this. And there's no way that it wasn't in his PDB. And it's no way that it wasn't brought to his attention. The question is, and this is where I don't think that, um, like you said, O'Brien or uh, Defense Secretary Mark Esper should be let off the hook here, because are are they so obsequious that this is something that they put in the PDB one day and mention it only one time and never again? Because there's so much focus on this one TDB and whether or not he was alerted. When you've got a situation, an allegation as serious as this, a bounty on the, the heads of U.S. troops, for this not to come up time and time and time and time again is just unheard of. That would be a dereliction of duty, too. So this is so, where I think it's not just on the president, but it's on his advisors. So, Bianca, given your um, expertise on uh, Russia and and Putin, uh, we would be remiss not to ask you about that dimension of the story. Uh, what was in it for for Putin and for the Russians to pursue an operation like this, which on its face seems somewhat risky, you know, if it were ever to see the light of day as it now has? Well, you have plausible deniability, and this is tactics that we've seen from the Russians and from Vladimir Putin time and time again. The little green men in in Ukraine is a perfect example. They have been known to hire mercenaries in the Middle East as well. And so this is an example where you have Russians that could say, we had nothing to do with this. These are Afghanis. They clearly have issues with U.S. forces being there as well, uh, and the Taliban and the history uh, there. So you have plausible deniability, you have a president who is much more of a tactician than he is a strategist. Strategically, of course, Vladimir Putin wants to sow chaos. He wants to drive a discord and division amongst U.S. allies and NATO coalition, and he wants U.S. troops out of the region. So all of that would be accomplished. It has been sort of in the works, as we've seen from the president, wanting to pull troops out of um, out of Germany and uh talking um, constantly about the need for possibly a new look and format for NATO going forward, um, questioning how much you know, other countries are contributing uh, to the coalition. And then, you know, you're in the midst of a, a hasty um, deal with peace deal with the, the Taliban and getting U.S. troops removed from there. But I think I think the biggest takeaway is actions speak louder than words. And in this in this case, Words have been right up there with the Trump's with the president's actions. What he says is what he means, and, and, and he acts on it. And Vladimir Putin just has to look at the previous three years of the Trump administration, and time and time again, publicly, and who knows what's said behind closed doors, the president has has you know, sided with Vladimir Putin over his own intelligence agencies, which he's already done this time, uh, just this week, in the in the latest scandal. 
Beyond another Russia question I wanted to ask you, we just finished this week a seven-day national plebiscite in Russia intended to keep uh, Vladimir Putin in power till, uh, until at least 2036. Surprise, surprise, three-quarters of voters endorsed the constitutional changes that would allow Putin to remain in power. What do you make of this plebiscite? Well, look, I, I don't think this surprised any of us. It is unfortunate and very disappointing in the, the longer-term history and the arc of Russia and, and its evolution towards what was a fledgling you know, democracy. It, it had its issues. There was a lot of corruption uh, back when in Yeltsin uh, was president, but obviously things took a dramatic change when an unknown man by the name of Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin came to office in 1999. And you look at where things stand now in the country, it's got an economy that's smaller than that of Italy's. It has one natural resource. It's a resource-based economy for the most part. It's not technologically advanced the way other um, world powers would be, but it is a world power nonetheless. It's a nuclear power. And given um, Vladimir Putin's dominance on the global stage and the still unanswered question of what is going on between the relationship with him and President Trump, he has become and remained a powerful force to be dealt with. Internally, he is not as popular as he was in Russia, but who was his running mate? Who have been his, I mean, who was his opponent? Who have been his opponents uh, over these past years? I, you can't name them because anybody that would speak up other than Navalny um, would be quelled and, and uh, many, uh, if his um, opponents have had worse fates, right, than just prison. The fact that the voters, you know, approved this by uh, three quarters uh, of those who voted, uh, is this was this a completely rigged election? Is it that uh, opponents of Putin just don't bother to show up? What should we make of that? It's, it's a combination of many factors. Um, one is that uh, in, in Putin's mind, he succeeded in, in accomplishing a, a monolithic sort of one man show in the vertical power structure that he has uh, focused on and invested in over the past um, few years. And, and that is making sure that he is accountable and answerable to, to all and that there's not an equal or co-equal branch in the government there and the Russian government. Now, whether or not he's been able to pull that off successfully, that's a different argument. Uh, you've seen many sloppy things, uh, whether it's natural disasters, whether it's infrastructures there, whether it's the handling of the economy, whether it's the handling of COVID. None of that has been executed perfectly uh, by any stretch of the imagination. He came into power hoping to instill calm and order and respect for Russia around the world. One could say that he's achieved some, given his, his global hand and, and with the help of, of the U.S., we should add, in his stretch in reaching the Middle East. But and and then even Latin America and in Venezuela. But domestically, he's not very popular. The question is who but for him. Right. And, yeah. and, and even that that was sort of the campaign that, that his team and his party in Russia has been putting forward is, is who else is there? Who else is there but Vladimir Putin? They well, need a country like this. Yeah. Well, but if my math is right, in 2036 he'll be 83 years old. Let's hope he's not riding around on a horse shirtless. 
<laughs> the way he has in the past. Got to say, I also Images wonder we if, don't need. Uh, I also yeah. wonder if Donald Trump is kind of uh, stroking his chin uh, in meetings at the White House and asking about plebiscites. Is that a possibility for me, <laughs> given the poll numbers? Uh, <laughs> I think what, what, what President Trump doesn't realize is that a lot of this doesn't come from a place of strength, but a place of weakness. Vladimir Putin... For, you know, for somebody who's been in office as long as he has, I, I think it's pretty fair to say when he first entered office, he couldn't imagine that he would still be here so many years later. And the reason I say that is because without his power, without his title, he's a dead man walking. And a lot of people in the corrupt state that he's built around him depend on him being in office. He's placed many of his cronies around him to run the country's largest companies and, and industries around him. And so without him, he has no power. And unlike other presidents, U.S. presidents and other presidents around the world, he can't just go retire peacefully into the night or write books and give speeches and, and open libraries. So uh, he knows his fate, and that's why he realizes that uh, he is best left to run the country as opposed to going quietly and into retirement. So while uh, Putin is solidifying his grip on power and uh, Trump is giving him a pass, it looks like the coronavirus is not giving anybody a pass. We hit 50,000 new cases this week on Thursday. On Wednesday, that was a record. And on Thursday, as we tape this podcast, Florida is reporting 10,000 new cases. That's a record for them. It does seem like this virus, which we all hoped was tamping itself down uh, a few weeks ago, is doing precisely the opposite. Well, I think when you look at where the U.S. Sat, uh, sat around the world as far as which country was best prepared for a pandemic and where the U.S. ranked at number one, um, I think that, that that graphic and that analysis will be sharply um, you know, revisited because every single thing minus a vaccine, minus therapeutics, We've done the opposite of what other countries have done, what other countries have done successfully, I should add, European countries and Asian countries. And you look at the, their curves and where their numbers are versus where ours are. And it's sad. And it's one of these situations that was likely avoidable. You think about what we experienced here in the Northeast, those first few months, the hell on earth and all of the other states that could have taken an example from that and noted what to do and what not to do and learn lessons from our pain, that's not how things played out. And you look at states and obviously, you know, I think the greatest irony is when this first hit, everyone thought, okay, well, look, there's no politics in this. This is the great equalizer and the pandemic knows no party line. And, you know, from masks on down to reopening too early, that's not the case. And you see states like Texas and Florida having reopened much sooner than their local officials would have liked. And now you're paying the price and we're all paying the price as a country. And you're seeing hospitals fill up to capacity, ICUs fill up to capacity. I think the only positive that you could possibly make of this is that over time, we've come to treat this uh, the, the virus better and um, we've been able to extend life further and longer. But, uh, you know, we're still in the first wave and we have an administration that, that views this as just uh, embers, you know, that flare up from time to time. What do you think this does to our reputation uh, around the world, our standing in the world? I mean, it's uh, stunning to me that the European Union 
decided that Americans could not come to Europe. I mean, just symbolically, the impact of that is just kind of jaw-dropping. And rightly so. They looked at the numbers. Anybody that thinks this is sort of a back-at-you-America, you know, karma after the United States was the first to to ban travel from Europeans has to realize that this happens at the height of summer travel when a lot of those countries depend on American tourists and American dollars. So it's a big hit for them to to make this decision. And they uh, would know that, that the ramifications of having Americans come in at a time where you're seeing a spike in, in coronavirus cases would just be um, a huge setback for them. And one that they, you have countries like Italy and others that were very hard hit in Spain that have continued to see their, that, that level, you know, go down. And for it to flare back up, would, you know, be a huge disservice for, for their population. And listen, all uh, European Union uh, officials have to do is read the reports out today about how some college kids in Alabama are having COVID parties trying to get the disease. And, um, you know, maybe all they need to see to say we're going to keep Americans out. That's pretty astonishing, these reports about the COVID parties. Well, look at the city council meetings that we've shown in Florida and what have you, where they're, they're, you know, when you have public health officials on the receiving end of death threats and um, constantly bombarded with allegations and conspiracy theories. I mean, you know all about conspiracy theories and, and where they can take things. And, you know, mix that in with with social media and it creates a a situation where one would think that's not something that would happen in the United States of America. I remember the president um, in Belarus would say things like, you know, just drink vodka or real men don't catch coronavirus. And we all thought that these people were, you know, crazy and and that that here we follow the science. And that's not necessarily the case. And time. I mean, it's just heartbreaking to read about these doctors and health officials who have to defend their practice and their warnings. Well, I don't, it may not be fair to say that uh, President Trump is holding uh, coronavirus parties, but I do think that the fact that he is insisting on going to Mount Rushmore for a 4th of July uh, celebration there, actually on the 3rd, uh, on the 3rd of July tomorrow, and then, you know, holding a the big 4th of July celebration on the mall with 35 minutes uh, of, you know, fireworks and military planes flying over and essentially encouraging significant numbers of people to come down to the mall. It's pretty irresponsible. I mean, there are people, governors and, and, and mayors all over the country who are canceling uh, their 4th of July celebrations or doing them virtually to minimize and mitigate those kinds of uh, risks. So, you know, he, he never misses an opportunity to uh, bring together a big crowd as, you know, I guess part of his uh, uh, need for adulation. But it remains to be seen whether he people will actually come or if it'll end yeah, up being I was gonna a, say, another think, uh, Tulsa this- situation. The, the fourth of I was just going to make that point that the this Fourth of July celebration he's planning atten- uh, to attend could end up looking more like the Tulsa rally than um, anything else, and that's probably not going to pick up his spirits in the way he, he he's hoping it will. Um, one other story just worth mentioning because it you know wasn't expected today, but uh, Ghislaine Maxwell, uh, the longtime associate of Jeffrey Epstein. 
was arrested in New Hampshire and uh, indicted uh, today on charges that she served as the procurer of young underage girls for Epstein. Uh, To me, the biggest surprise here is that she was holed up in New Hampshire. She's a British citizen. It's been known for nearly a year. I think it was early July when Epstein was first indicted and it was made clear by prosecutors from the get-go that this was an ongoing investigation. She was the most likely next target for federal prosecutors and why she was uh, in the United States at all is, is, is something that seems puzzling to me. But I think for most people seeing this news, uh, you know, the reaction will be it's about time. Well, and, and given what happened to Jeffrey Epstein, you know, the next question people have is whether or not, you know, we can expect a headline that there was an attempted you know, suicide or threat to her life um, now that she's been taken into custody. But look, this, this story just touches every single corner and facet of politics, of celebrity, uh, of royalty. Um, you have to wonder how Prince Andrew is feeling right now. Uh, I do wonder what you know, former high-level officials from both parties are thinking. And I was reading headlines that there are allegations of you know, former Israeli politicians that, that are in the mix here. So a lot's going to be coming out in the next couple of weeks. And what caught, caught my attention today was that um, she is, her case was assigned to the Public Corruption Unit, unlike Epstein's case. So I wonder what that means. Does that mean that there are public officials that, that you know, are maybe implicated here? Who knows? Well, that that could certainly be quite fascinating, especially if for some reason they could get her to um, cooperate. Now, the problem is, you know, the only the guy she worked for is dead. You would usually want a number two like Maxwell to dime out somebody above her. But. Maybe she's got some information about others who were in the Epstein orbit and who have denied knowing or seeing or being a part of anything. But um, we will have to see. So before before we go, I I, I just want to mention um, one more thing. Heading into the Fourth of July weekend, we did uh, one of our uh, Yahoo News NewsGov polls, and this was to kind of uh, take a measure of how Americans um, are feeling about their country, how much pride they have in America as we celebrate Independence Day. And this requires a little bit of setup. I'll do this quickly. But some of our more seasoned listeners uh, will remember the famous farewell address in 1989 that President Ronald Reagan gave when he famously described the United States as a shining city on a hill, a kind of a beacon of hope uh, and a model for the rest of the world. So our poll shows that a significant majority, 52% of Americans believe that that description was accurate at the time that Reagan said it, and only 21% disagreed. Today, 63% of Americans say the U.S. is no longer that shining city on a hill, and just 17% say it still is. So, you know, I've uh, got to say, given everything that's been going on in this country, coronavirus, police killings of unarmed black men and uh, scandal after scandal, the economy tanking. It's uh, it's going to be a little bit of a grim um, Fourth of July holiday for everyone. So 
I hate to bring that up as our last point <laughs> heading into the holiday weekend. So yeah, Bjorn, we'll throw it to you to say something <laughs> uplifting and optimistic. Let me try to be as optimistic as I can, because July 3rd this year will mark 34 years that I'm a citizen of the United States. Um, we moved here in, in 1980 and became citizens in 1986. I always look to my parents in, in times of, of strife and when I'm gloomed out by the, the news headlines and they always remind me that this is the best country in the world for better or worse. And that doesn't mean that there are ugly chapters in this country's history and in its present day that need to be dealt with. And um, I think coronavirus, I think race relations in this country, I think the political partisanship um, is, is all a black eye on, the, on, on all of us and, and exposes a lot of work that needs to be done. So by no means do we live in a fantasy world where things are just hunky-dory. And I think how this, you know, government in particular has approached the issue of immigrants is, is another sore subject and, and something that's unfortunate. And I hope that at some point sooner rather than later, we will all come to appreciate how wonderful this U.S. experiment is and, um, and, and come to appreciate that there's no other country in the world that, that can give people still today the opportunities that immigrants and every one of us has here. So it's, it's on us and it's imperative that we all work as hard as we can. And I would add to that that we all have kids of various ages, um, and uh, you know I'm sure that all of them are finding ways to kind of confront these issues and ask questions about them and and deal with them um, in ways that maybe should give us all a little bit of hope for uh, uh, for the future. On that um, somewhat uplifting note, um, Bian, I want to thank you for uh, once again joining us on Skullduggery. Have a great holiday weekend and uh, we shall have you back. It's been great. Don't wait so long next time. We won't. (laughs) We won't. We won't. We now have with us Congressman Eric Swalwell, member of the House Intelligence Committee, House Judiciary Committee, author of the new book, Endgame, Inside the Impeachment of Donald J. Trump, and a uh, frequent skullduggery guest. Uh, Great to have you back, Congressman. Of course. Thank you guys for having me back. So uh, quite a bit to talk about right now, particularly with the revelations over the last week about the intelligence that was known to the White House and the U.S. intelligence community that the Russians were paying bounties to the Taliban for killing American soldiers. Tell us what you're a member of the Intelligence Committee. I don't know if you've been personally briefed yet, but what do you know now about what these intelligence reports were, how long they were in the pipeline and who they were briefed to? So I I have reviewed many of the underlying uh, materials uh, around this allegation. I'm very concerned by what I have reviewed so far. Uh, I and my colleagues are seeking not only a House intelligence briefing, but also a briefing uh, for the entire House. It's not a hoax. It's certainly not a hoax. And just to kind of put in context for your listeners, this is information that went into the president's daily brief. And this is not the back of a bar napkin. You know, you, you don't just posit, you know, an idea about something that's going on and it makes its way to the president. Uh, what I've learned being on the committee going on 
uh, six years is that uh, this is the gold standard when it comes to intelligence and that people in the community take a lot of pride when their product makes its way to the president's eyes. And, and so that takes a lot of research, that takes a lot of vetting, and it also takes uh, relevance. Like the issue has to be relevant enough that the president would see it. And so, again, I hope to learn more, but the other context, if public reporting is true, is that not only was it in the president's briefing, but it was information given to our allies, as well as information that was used to move co our forces and coalition forces. So you wouldn't do any of that if it was a hoax, if there was dissenting information about it. You would only do that if it was highly credible. Congressman, let's just, just we're going to get into a lot of detail, all these questions about how the administration handled this intelligence. But I want to just step back for a moment. The story is kind of shocking on its face. And obviously, when you're talking about the lives of U.S. service members, you know, that is a very big deal. But help our listeners understand sort of beyond that, why this is so troubling in terms of the kind of precedent that it might set in terms of what it means going forward for the way terrorist organizations and maybe other countries treat the United States uh, on the battlefield? Uh, sure. It's a great question. So first and foremost, you know, the president is the, you know, commander in chief. He's the supreme military leader uh, in our country. So he is responsible for the protection of our uh, troops. Uh, now, on the battlefield, you know, there's a coalition, not just of the United States, but other countries, you know, in Afghanistan, uh, the Taliban, uh, since we went in there in 2001, have targeted U.S. And, and coalition troops. Russia has tried to reach out to us uh, and the president has embraced Russia's help in, you know, fighting terrorism and has tried to justify, you know, the relationship he has with Russia is one that's important, you know, in fighting ISIS and, and terrorism. We talked about that during the 2016 campaign as and has talked about that since being president. But if Russia is not helping us fight terrorism and, and instead is actually, you know, paying for the killing of U.S. troops, there's going to have to be a, you know, a price to pay for Russia in the form uh, of sanctions, in the form of further alienating them from, you know, the tables of leaders in different forms, you know, across the globe and, and perhaps in other realms as well. But this is serious. And I, I just don't buy that the president didn't see it either. He's the he's the commander in chief. The fact that he would not be told about this, just frankly, I think it's bullshit. So, look, as you know, Trump administration officials have pushed back, saying that the intelligence wasn't fully vetted, that there wasn't unanimity among U.S. intelligence agencies about this, that uh, some of it was murky. And that's not all that surprising. There's uh, intelligence reporting that's raw intelligence that frequently there's no consensus about and is often wrong. We do know U.S. intelligence agencies get things wrong from time to time, uh, sometimes very wrong, as we saw in the, during the run-up to the Iraq war. So you say you've reviewed the underlying intelligence. Give us a sense of just how much of a consensus there was about what was happening, how solid it was, and is it possible that this was not fully nailed down, that there was a measure of an analytic judgment as opposed to hardcore evidence of what the Russians were doing? As I said, I, I've seen underlying materials. We're, we're seeking more. I, I really cannot go into uh, what I've seen, but what I've seen is concerning. And as I said, it's it's not a hoax. It, it doesn't appear to be 
unverified. And again, the just what I can tell you, what I, which I hope is helpful, is that the way that the president's daily brief works is that you don't put spitball ideas into the president's daily brief. So the fact that it was put in front of him is of itself validating of the underlying intelligence. But also, just to go back, to put in perspective, you know, the president, if you remember, I mean, he was doing an end zone dance after the killing of Soleimani in Iran. And there were certainly a lot of questions about the imminency around whether there was intelligence supporting an attack on U.S. troops. So if he was so quick to act there, when I when I compare that to what I've seen here, it, it really makes me wonder why has the president not stood up for U.S. troops in the same way that he ostensibly was doing so uh, with Soleimani? What's the answer? I, you know, I, as I said, we're seeking more information. We don't want to you know, jump to the same conclusions the way the president does. But we have 200,000 military families in California. And to them, patriotism is more than waving a flag. It's, it's actually protecting the troops while they're on the battlefield. And if the president isn't going to do it, thankfully, we have the House majority now uh, and we can. So you were deeply involved in um, the impeachment of President Trump. You've written a book about it. You've spent a lot of time looking at intelligence and information involving Trump and his relationship with Putin. This is just another kind of turn of the wheel in this narrative. At this point, what is sort of your bottom line view of Trump's willingness to placate the Russians now, even apparently when it involves the lives of American service members? I mean, where do you come down on on uh, his motivation? Yeah, I think he makes us look like geniuses every day for impeaching him. You know, the, he was impeached for putting his personal interests above the country's. And again, I, it looks like that's what's happening here. And in, for some, perhaps when we were in 2016 and 2017, expressing concern about the president's partnerships and, and welcoming help from Russia, perhaps people didn't know the cost or perhaps the cost then was unknown or immeasurable. But now, if, if these allegations are true and the Russians are paying for the lives of American soldiers on the battlefield, well, the cost is the blood of our soldiers. And, and I, I think the American people will understand that. You know, as to the motivations, I, I think we can just focus on the actions. I, you know, Mueller did not look at uh, the president's finances. We're waiting for a Supreme Court case, uh, perhaps as early as Monday, that would allow us to see more uh, into the president's finances. Uh, but to me, uh, the simplest explanation is usually uh, the correct one. And it, it seems that he is incapable uh, of standing up to Putin. And this is a country and, and a person where he has sought to do multi-million dollar business deals and sought to con conceal those deals uh, with the American people. And so, yeah, but I, I think the actions tell us enough. And it could well be just that uh, it, the president, for uh, whatever reason, is so hung up on his sense of personal grievance that he was unfairly investigated and that any reference to Russian misbehavior is only a way for people to use it to throw a taint on his presidency, that he cannot deal with any substantive issues relating to what, what Putin does. You know, if that's true, then I guess, he, what is he doing? He's proving us wrong by letting American soldiers die. I mean, that that's a hell of a way to respond, you know, to what he perceives as an unfair 
uh, investigation. Again, I, I think you, you have, and not too long ago, an instance where the president had intelligence put in front of him about threats to American soldiers, and he acted quite swiftly. Some would say it was quite aggressively in what he did with Soleimani. And here, I've seen concerning intelligence that involves our soldiers, and the president has done nothing. Congressman, you said before that this should trigger sanctions and further efforts to isolate Putin's Russia from the world community. But let's be specific about that, because Russia is still a world power. We still have dealings with them, whether it's on space flights or trying to fight ISIS and other terrorism around the world. So be specific. What sort of sanctions does should this activity trigger and what further actions should we be taking to penalize Putin for doing this? First and foremost, you know, I, I think we disinvite them to the G7 party, uh, where, where the president was suggesting they should be, you know, brought back in. That absolutely should not uh, occur. Uh, I also believe, you know, if this evidence bears out that it should be presented, you know, to the United Nations. Yes, of course, they have veto power on the Security Council, but naming and shaming is a way to deal with Russia. I, I've always believed that you have to call them out publicly. I do believe there's financial sanctions. And also when we talk, when we think about our NATO allies and the, the number of countries, you know, who have helped us on the battlefield, and if the public reports are true that the information was shared with them because they were targeted, well, you know, they have business relationships with Russia as well. You know, Nord Stream 2, by the way, is underway. And, you know, you can really hit Russia where it hurts. So there's there's no shortage of options for Russia that aren't even kinetic. And, and I'll leave it mm -hmm. to the generals and the Joint Chiefs to recommend, you know, what what type of response is appropriate if they have indeed and still are targeting uh, U.S. soldiers. Congressman, let me follow up on the on the sanctions piece of this. Your party controls the House. Um, so presumably you could get a majority to vote for sanctions in the House, but you don't control the Senate. And so it seems to me that if you could muster a bipartisan vote in the House, that would make it a lot easier to get a sanctions package through the, through the Senate. Have you had a chance to talk to any of your Republican colleagues up there? I mean, how are they reacting to this? I don't see a lot of expressions of outrage yet. Well, first, as you've seen, we've had issues uh, in the past, uh, you know, where the, the Senate allowed sanctions to ease on Oleg Deripaska uh, back in uh, 2019. So uh, we, we have had issues with the Senate, you know, not sticking with us as it relates to sanctions. But I don't think that means we shouldn't try and I'll leave it to the speaker, you know, in, in our foreign affairs and intelligence team to come up with what's appropriate. But that I think has to you know remain on the table. Is, is your question about Republicans? You know, I, I am encouraged by uh, some who have spoken up and, and said that you know one we need to be briefed and we need to know what the president uh, knows. But you know talk is cheap uh, around here. And other than Mitt Romney, we have not seen you know real courage. You know the full devotion of political courage in Congress from any Republican. Uh, and right now I hope that the lives of our soldiers are is enough to. Uh, summon that. Courage. Yeah. Well, I guess. Yeah. I guess my, my follow up question to that is, I guess the larger question is, is national security and foreign policy 
just utterly politicized now. The old quote from Arthur Vandenberg, uh, politics is supposed to end at the water's edge, which old people like Isakoff and I know. <laughs> I think Isakoff may have covered Vandenberg. I'm yeah, not sure. <laughs> yeah. uh, he was but, a great I mean, source. He was a great source. Yeah. But I mean, what is your view of that? I mean, is national security um, up there on Capitol Hill just utterly and totally politicized right now? Is there is there any chance of a real bipartisan consensus on on these issues at all? Well, my, my hope is that because we have so many people uh, on both sides of the aisle who have served either, you know, on the battlefield or, you know, in the intelligence community, uh, that that their, their voices uh, will make it, you know, to the top on this issue. I mean, they're the ones that know more than anyone else, you know, what it's like to have Blue Star families at home uh, on pins and needles uh, as you're out there uh, for days and weeks of time, a time out of communication and the anxiety that you see, we in our family, we have a, a blue star mom whose uh, son uh, just returned a couple months ago from Afghanistan. And, and we all went through, you know, about nine months of that anxiety. And so it's real. And those those soldiers who are now serving in Congress, uh, they could be quite effective. But, you know, as to why, why should Congress care and, and what can Congress do? I, I go back to impeachment. We did not remove Donald Trump. I think history will prove we were right for impeaching him. I think the standards of conduct have been upheld for what we expect from presidents. But what we also learned was that once we launched that investigation, that is what led to Ukraine getting the aid that they were supposed to get. So if you check the president, he actually, ultimately, you can get the right result. You know, Ukraine wouldn't have gotten that aid if we had not opened that investigation. So here, you know, I hope that by exposing his failure to act, that we can protect, you know, future troops uh, on the battlefield uh, and, and save lives. Because if we, if this had not been reported by the New York Times, I'm afraid the public shame on the president and the political cost, because that's, I think, all he looks at, would not have been there. And we could have seen more, you know, troops uh, in harm's um, way. Just want to uh, add a bit to uh, Kleiman's question about Republicans. I want to differ a little bit because we have seen some House Republicans speaking out in ways we haven't seen before, particularly Liz Cheney who was right out of the box demanding answers about why weren't the president or vice president briefed, who did know at what and when. To me, that's a sign that some in the House, perhaps reading the polls, perhaps seeing the direction of uh, the way things seem to be going, are beginning to separate themselves from the president. Would you agree? Yes, I agree. And I hope that's not why people are, are speaking up. You know, I don't I hope they don't see this as a political off-ramp, uh, you know, from the road that the president is, is taking them all uh, down. But again, as I, as I said, um, actions speak louder than words. You know, what are, what are you right. willing to do? Are you willing to join, you know, bipartisan, you know, efforts for sanctions? Are you, are you willing to, you know, speak out, you know, against uh, the president? Uh, it, it's one thing to say you're concerned and you want to be briefed, but are you willing to call for a full house briefing? I mean, there's a lot that is going to have to happen in the next you know, coming days. And we're obviously going in a Fourth of July recess and we can't let this issue uh, go away. Right. Now, speaking of things that are not going away, you're also a member of the House Judiciary Committee. And at the end of the month, I believe you've uh, finally going to get Attorney General Barr to testify 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, a lot of uh, concern about Justice Department intervention in cases that grew out of the Mueller investigation, Roger Stone, Michael Flynn, and uh, calls from some that the attorney general has committed uh, impeachable offenses. Do you believe uh, Attorney General Barr should be impeached? Yeah, I, I believe that before I believe Donald Trump should have been impeached. And I called for that in May 2019 when he was asked by Congressman Christ, if you recall, right after the Mueller report had come out, if Mueller had dissented in any way about his findings. And, and he said no, that that had not occurred. And then, of course, Mueller had to you know, issue a, a letter dissenting uh, to the way that Barr had characterized the report. So for the way he mischaracterized the report, for the, you know, the untruthful testimony uh, to Congress, to what we learned last week uh, on the Judiciary Committee of the Barr team uh, involving itself you know, in the sentencing recommendation for Roger Stone, uh, because uh, there would be a political consequence if, if Stone got what everyone else would have gotten. And then I, I think what he's doing right now to undermine the integrity of our elections by co-signing on this debunked claim by the president that mail-in balloting uh, is fraudulent. I, I think he's worthy of at least being under an impeachment investigation. And going back to what I said earlier, what we learned with Ukraine was that when you check these folks, you actually end up stopping or deterring, you know, further uh, corruption. Uh, and maybe if, if that's the best that comes out of it, maybe we could save more wrecking balls that would be taken to the rule of law. But you're a minority, uh, even within your party, for a, a, an impeachment investigation of uh, Attorney General Barr, aren't you? Or, or do you think that uh, there is support for that? Have you talked to your colleagues? Is that something, I mean, five months out from a presidential election that, that is plausible that could actually happen? It's a very personal decision, and it's just one of those decisions where you don't lobby others to do it. There's respect among members that you, you don't lobby someone to impeach and you don't lobby them to take themselves off of a call for impeachment. And Speaker Pelosi, and I, and I put this in the book, you know, she never did a whip count on impeaching Trump and she never went after people who were calling for impeaching Trump. She was never shy about how she felt about it before during and throughout. But it's not something I'm going to lobby for. I think the evidence uh, is there. But I was in the minority before, you know, when not everyone in the caucus believed that Donald Trump should be impeached. And, and again, I think that decision is going to stand the test of time. Tell us about Endgame. Yeah, it's, it's a tribute to the heroes uh, who came forward. Uh, you know, John Bolton's book is called In the Room Where It Happened. Uh, and frankly, the room where it happened was the Ways and Means Committee room where uh, Marie Ivanovich, Fiona Hill, Lieutenant Colonel Vindman uh, came forward and, and testified. It also uh, is, is kind of a behind the scenes look at the number of Republicans uh, who went from being concerned about Donald Trump and, and telling me in the early days of the Trump campaign and administ administration that they were worried about what he was doing with Russia. They wanted to do more to stop him. But as one of them told me on the Intelligence Committee, uh, when he tweets, he wins. And, and so it's just as much a, a tribute to courage as it is a condemnation uh, of cowardice, uh, but also a call to action that if those brave folks on the inside could risk their lives and careers to speak truth to power, we can move our feet to the ballot box this November. You mentioned uh, John Bolton, and of course, in his book, he 
is critical uh, of the Democrats' approach in the impeachment of the president. And his thesis seems to be that they should have gone broad instead of narrow, that they could have gone after the president on China, on meddling in investigations, and all under the sort of this larger theme of putting his personal political interests above the country's um, interests. Uh, in looking back, do you think that uh, there were there were any mistakes that uh, the Democrats made? You know, I, I think we will only regret that we didn't do more when it comes to President Trump. And, and John Bolton's saying that we should have investigated more. I mean, it's, it's like a fireman showing up with his truck and hose after the building's been burned to the ground and saying, uh, I'm here, guys. I'm ready to help. And then criticizing the folks who had tried to put the, the fire out. I mean, come on. He was asked by the House to come forward. He said, essentially, see you in court. And as we sit here, we know what see you in court looks like because we're still waiting for a ruling on the McGahn uh, case, uh, which has not even gone to the Supreme Court. So like, we would still be waiting for John Bolton, uh, that, you know, like waiting for Godot, waiting for Bolton. That, that's what, where we would be right now uh, if we had followed his, uh, his preferred course. I should point out as the co-host of this podcast that the uh, paperback, the long-awaited paperback of Russian Roulette is also just out with a new epilogue on the uh, impeachment battle with some insights into uh, what motivated uh, President Trump's conduct there. But look, the, the strongest pushback against impeachment from Republicans and not just Republicans, people just quoting Democrats up until the point that you brought the impeachment articles of impeachment is that impeachment should be reserved when there's an overwhelming public consensus to do it, that you're not. So it doesn't look like one party is substituting, you know, its verdict for the other party. And the fact is that the polls never really moved on this. You never had a clear majority who thought, even while you made the case, and even while as uh, Lamar Alexander, the senator, the Republican from Tennessee, finally concluded, you, you proved that Trump did exactly what you accused him of doing, of withholding military aid in order to extract intervention by the Ukrainians to help his reelection, that it just didn't rise to the level. So how do you address that, that you just never were able to convince the American public to go along? Well, I, I would argue that there, you know, many of the polls did have it over 50 percent. Never really sustained. It was, you know, it, it flipped back and forth. But didn't two thirds yeah. of folks want to hear witnesses? And, and so we were up against, you know, Mulvaney and Bolton and others, you know, not coming in, not giving us documents. And even, you know, with, you know, a, a flashlight, uh, you know, in the dark, we were still able to find so much that concerned at least a, a majority of Americans that he should be impeached and remove. But the standard that we used was never public sentiment. And I, I think that's, and when I say courage, I, my book was not just a tribute to the people who came forward, but also the quote unquote frontline members uh, in, in our caucus who had won with a few hundred votes in some instances, but said, you know what, there may be a political price to pay, but the evidence warrants impeachment, making sure no future president does this and, and setting a standard warrants impeachment, and also not prejudging what the Senate would do, because that was, if you recall, a lot of people said, and they were right, 
the Senate's never going to remove him, so why are you doing this? And our point was, why should we let them off the hook? Uh, why why should we not try and develop a case and, and see, you know, if they could further develop it, you know, with the Chief Justice sitting there uh, and ruling on witnesses? They ultimately chose not to do that. But I, I again, my belief, uh, and I've got to run to the Capitol now, uh, but my belief is that 5, 10, 15 years from now, we will not look back and wish that we had been less aggressive with our oversight. I think we will only regret that we did not do more because we will learn more as this president is an ex-president and more information comes out. So a lot of people uh, during the impeachment proceedings were making the argument that the best way to remove Donald Trump was at the ballot box to wait for the election. The election is now five months off. What is your current assessment of where this presidential race stands? And would you um, predict a Biden victory? And if so, by what margin? Yeah, I, I just believe it's, it's going to be a election day of reckoning. I, I really I believe that um, you've seen from the day after Donald Trump was sworn in, the, the millions who marched uh, you know, in the Women's March to the end of that first year where Doug Jones in December 2017 won a special election uh, in Alabama. 2018, we sweep the midterms. We don't suffer you know, the losses that we probably should have with a, a real, the worst Senate map in almost 100 years. And then in 19, we win in Virginia uh, and Kentucky. Earlier this week in Oklahoma, voters there voted for you know Medicaid expansion. And so I, I really do see a, an earthquake election uh, approaching. And the responsibility for us is going to be to pick up the pieces, unite the country, uh, and never allow uh, a corrupt president like this uh, again to expose you know all of the vulnerabilities that he's exposed. So you're not what David Pluff uh, would refer to nervous, uh, angst-ridden Democrats as the bedwetters. You're not a bedwetter, clearly. I'm not a bedwetter. I would rather be us <laughs> than them. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. Well, Congressman, thanks for joining us. And uh, we've got five months left. We will definitely have you back and always appreciate your insights. Thank you, guys. Thanks to Congressman Eric Swalwell and CNN's senior global affairs analyst, Biana Golodriga, for joining us on Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.